The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 57 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not that my president past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to or resort to my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I'm going to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. So, well, if you missed last week's episode with the Chief Information Security Officer of ASRC Federal, Mr. Darren Death, I highly suggest you find your favorite playback medium and give it a listen. That's right, Mr. Darren Death. Darren's a big influencer in the space. He gave his opinion on everything from the benefit of obtaining a doctorate degree in cybersecurity to the importance of efficient execution of your cybersecurity operations that support basic cyber hygiene into how corporations incur technical debt through cybersecurity in action. It was really a great interview. He said much, much more. He gave some very interesting takes on how to partner with internal IT organizations and other lines of business in your, in your enterprise. Uh, he talked about a little bit about the cost and the return on investment related to information security investments. But what I really like about the interview with him was that Darren gave us his opinion on what a leader's responsibility is as it relates to cybersecurity in their organization. And, and you're getting it straight from a world-class CISO. I mean, he's a world-class leader in this industry, and he's talking about what it takes to be a leader in this industry, and I think a lot of people really, really respected that, really liked it. I think these types of conversations are extremely uh, informative and educational, and it's really what this uh, program is all about. So, Darren was great. I can't wait to have him back on the show again. That's the CISO of ASRC Federal, Mr. Darren Death, on episode number 56 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Well, you can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and, of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world, 
at voiceamerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fix. Wherever we're at, folks, you can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you'll get all your options. Check us out, folks. TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, 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 don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe, folks. So I'm pretty jacked up about tonight's show because I'm having one of my good friends on with me tonight. Kate Fazzini is going to be on the show with us tonight. And Kate is a cybersecurity reporter for one of the biggest TV networks on the planet. She covers cybersecurity for CNBC. And before joining CNBC, she most recently covered cybersecurity for the Wall Street Journal. So she knows the cybersecurity space and journalism very, very well. And prior to that, she also worked in the cybersecurity field herself as a practitioner and roles at the Promontory Financial Group, as well as with J.P. Morgan Chase, where we work together over at the Death Star on Park Avenue. So Kate holds a master's degree in cybersecurity strategy from the George Washington University, and she serves as an adjunct professor in the Applied Intelligence Program at Georgetown, as well as the cybersecurity program at the University of Maryland. So ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Mrs. Kate Fazzini. Kate, welcome to the show. Hi, George. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm very happy to have you. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. I'm in the, in the mood to sort of jump right in it tonight. I mean, I want to talk a little bit with you about the threat actor taxonomy and get your opinion on a few things. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, when we examine our threat actor taxonomy, we have a lot of threats out there from nation states. We got criminal groups and terrorist groups. Usually those are the, the top three out of the five we take a look at. In your opinion, Kate, who represents the most formidable threat to the national security of the United States? I think that's a, it's a really interesting question. I think there's a, a great, diverse, many different folks out there. I think uh, as opposed to naming just a nation state, I'd like to say that for me, what keeps me up at night are the lone wolves. I think that the ability of so many people now to get a hold of really incredible technology, uh, tools used by very sophisticated hackers in in past criminal exploits, um, it is very worry-making. Uh, you, you might see a nation state like Russia or, or China doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes, but when it comes to that really big, frightening attack that causes a loss of life, God forbid, uh, I think that that's where you're going to see somebody who's a lone wolf terrorist, uh, a single individual who was able to get their hands on this an incredible technology that has been leaked out there now. So I guess it's not only in these nation states, but it's these individual actors maybe acting by themselves mm-hmm. that maybe in your mind cause the biggest danger to some of our companies and some of our critical infrastructure. I, I mean, I think uh, if, you're, if you're looking at it, the, the longer-term impact, I, I think that between China and Russia, we have a, a very significant problem with the fact that uh, on the side of Russia, you have a, a nation that has created a, a structure where their intelligence apparatus can rely on criminals and what criminals are, a, are capable of doing. Um, they are you know, letting criminals get away with a lot of stuff as long as those individuals cooperate with what they're trying to do. That's been pretty clear by 
what a lot of uh, our intelligence agencies have said. Um, the United States, I don't think, you know, we're, we're going to have a really hard time competing with that because as a rule, as you know, George, uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, agencies don't really um, do a very, <laughs> they're, they're not very favorable about uh, cooperating with with criminals. Uh, would you agree with that? Yes, of course. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, we see, you know, when they talk about organized crime groups and nation states, I think there's a lot of collusion that we see because we see even in the IOCs, sometimes in one attack, we see IOCs that maybe represent an organized crime group or, or they're indicative of an organized crime group, I say. And then we see in that same attack, maybe some IOCs that are indicative of a nation state attack, which sometimes may indicate that they're, they're colluding with each other. But when we talk about like asymmetrical warfare with one of these countries, maybe like an adversary like Russia. How do you see that playing out? I mean, that's absolutely the the problem that the, the balance is asymmetrical between what Russia is doing and what China is doing. Again, we don't exactly have the ability here. Let's compare the United States to China. Uh, we are not. We, the DHS will often talk about how they want to have companies cooperate with the, the federal government more, share information, and that's, that's great. A lot of initiative there. But we are never going to have the in-depth relationship that the Chinese government has with Chinese corporations, where you have corporations that are in need of intellectual property in order to build their businesses, the government willing to, do, uh, to take steps to get that intellectual property from U.S. corporations, from other corporations from around the globe, uh, that is really difficult for us to compete with. So again, it's asymmetrical. They have capabilities that just aren't built into our society. Russia has these capabilities of working alongside criminals. They're willing to do it. Uh, they get a lot of, um, you know, they can get a lot of information that way. As you said, they can blur the lines between what is a criminal activity, what is a nation state sponsored activity. So there's a lot of plausible deniability. They can say, wasn't us. It was just some criminals. Um, and there's not a lot that you can do in terms of retaliation. So uh, I think that the United States has, has, you know, terrific cybersecurity capabilities. I think that we get outmatched just by what our competitors and what other nation states are willing to do. And, and those are things that we would never, I, I imagine, be willing to do. So it's interesting. So, that, you know, each one of these uh, adversaries to the United States, if you want to call them that in the cybersecurity space, especially, I know a lot of people think in the business world, think about China as a, as a friend and uh, as a business partner, but certainly in a lot of spaces in, in, in the government, they're considered an adversary. So when, you, when we talk about these two adversaries, Russia and China, it seems to me like even though they have their unique circumstances, both of them aren't playing by the rules. <laughs> it seems yeah. like the United States is always playing by the rules. So in your opinion, what are the disadvantages that we have in terms of our defensive posture versus what these countries are doing in cybersecurity space and the cyber warfare space? One of our biggest, one of our biggest strengths in the United States is, is of course, our, our entrepreneurial spirit and the fact that we put so much, uh, we put so much stock into what what our great corporations have been able to do. Um, you have these enormous tech corporations, all of them based in the United States, and we support their growth. Um, that growth is happening in China. That growth is happening sometimes in, in Russia. It's certainly happening in Eastern Europe. Um, it's happening across Asia. It's happening in, in other countries where uh, we might have some sort of adversarial relationship from time to time. And, and that causes a, a bit of a... I, 
I don't, I don't want to call it a weakness because um, I don't I don't necessarily think it's a traditional weakness, but it does create weakness in terms of information sharing because corporations that are doing business in China uh, have some split loyalties. If they want to build their business in China, they're going to have to do some things in terms of cooperating with the Chinese government. Uh, those things uh, are, are the Chinese government probably would not look favorably on a company that is really openly sharing all of the information from all of their customers with the U.S. government, uh, with the NSA. And for that reason, I think that these companies are going to have, have a really widespread uh, where, you know, they might, they might break their company apart. They might do different businesses that do different things over there. But it is still going to be a, a conflict of interest of sorts and one that I think makes it very difficult for companies to truly cooperate with the cyber defense of the United States. So I, clearly, I think it's a disadvantage to the United States when we talk about cyber warfare. When you, let's reverse it. Let's flip that coin for a second. You know, how about the advantages? What do you see that are our advantages? When I say our, I'm, I'm speaking specifically about the, the United States government. What are our advantages when we stack ourselves up against our adversaries? Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great question. I think, uh, you know, I think in the history of cybersecurity, first of all, in the history of technology and, and computer science, we have an enormous advantage that 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 the internet, that a lot of the uh, big hardware companies and the technology that the internet is based upon started here. So we have, you know, people who have been doing this stuff for a very, very long time. We have an infrastructure advantage. We have a knowledge advantage. Uh, the, we certainly have a tech company advantage. Um, I think that that makes us very strong. I think the, you know, our government agencies are also very strong. Uh, they've invested a lot. Um, I have my own opinions about how, uh, you know, th they probably need to do a better job of sharing information across government agencies. But still, I think we, we churn out some of the best cybersecurity professionals. Um, the disadvantages are some of the ones that I already mentioned. So we've got to take a quick break to go uh, speak to our commercial sponsors, but I want, to, I want to remember what you just said there. When we get back, I want to ask you about that information sharing and what that means and how we can improve upon that uh, in the future because I, I think that's uh, obviously a very important, it's part of what Task Force 7 really is about, really, when we're building the, not only the, the radio show but the platform as well. And uh, that information sharing is going to be the key to victory because it takes a network to beat a network. But so, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number seven, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months. For more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network, we're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover life cycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman Soar live in action. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, cybersecurity reporter for CNBC, Kate Hey, we were talking about before, uh, we were talking about nation states, we were talking about how they collude with, uh, with uh, other organized crime groups in some instances, how they have some advantages over us. But here in the United States, the Department of Homeland Security wants more companies to collaborate with each other and with the government in solving the problem of cybercrime. Now, how realistic do you think this strategy is? I, I think it's, uh, it, I think it's, pretty tough. I think they've had a tough road ahead. I'll I'll put it that way. Uh, Companies aren't set up, George, as you know, to uh, be particularly excited about cooperating with the government. Um, You won't find too many leaders at companies saying, you know, uh, I'm having a problem. I I think I'm going to call the FBI. (laughs) I I feel like they're going to uh, help me out. Uh, That that just doesn't happen. And, you know, but it has has to happen with cybersecurity. And so there's a real, there's a real learning curve. I mean, I think from the corporate angle, there, there are real concerns about 
bringing in a government agency, uh, whether it's whether it's the FBI, whether it's DHS, if uh, if you're a financial firm, if it's Treasury, um, depending on what else you do, it could be the Department of Energy, it could be uh, the Transportation Commission. Um, Nobody feels really great about calling those organizations. And, and so what DHS has done, um, and also what some of the, the private sector organizations, um, you're familiar, I'm sure you're re- your, your listeners are familiar with the FS Isaac um, and all of the other Isaacs, uh, the Information Sharing and Analysis Centers, where companies are able to share information. Uh, I think there's been a great effort there to create spaces where these companies can feel like I can share the information and it's not going to uh, get me into hot water um, unnecessarily. I'm not saying that the companies are trying to skip out on, you know, being regulated, but in, in unnecessarily bring in lots of government entities to, to look at what's going on. Um, and and that, is, that is what is necessary. I think, as we had mentioned in the previous segment, it's, it's also a bit of an issue with multinationals who... Uh, you know, especially after the Edward Snowden affair and some of the, uh, you know, the legislation that has come out with GDPR, lots of concerns about uh, the NSA and what they're doing with communications, that a lot of overseas governments, um, whether it's Europe or in Asia, are a little bit troubled about government cooperation with these, these corporations. And so that creates some friction in those overseas offices. So it's a really complicated picture. If that's what DHS wants to do and, and they're serious about it, they just they did just pass um, a, a bill, uh, I think that you saw, where they, they changed the name of uh, their uh, cybersecurity organization and you know giving more centralized power there. I think they've got a tough road ahead though. Yeah, you know, typically and historically, as far as sharing information with each other, companies would get really uncomfortable when they're sharing their dirty laundry, right? And they don't want anybody to have any type of competitive advantage over them, or especially in, in, the, in the business space. But to your point, a lot of the, uh, the ISACs have found a way where they can uh, get into a situation where they can share information anonymously right. without giving up who they are and still get access to information as well. And as far as it goes with the government, Companies are really concerned that, hey, look, if, if they're having a, a serious problem, especially if it's a criminal problem in any way, if they have this, the, this criminal issue and, and there's any, any, any action ever taken by the government, any court documents or anything, everything's really discoverable, you know, uh, when it comes to uh, the court, uh, any kind of yeah. court documents or court hearings. So right. they become concerned about that as well. And that's why they're so hesitant to go out and, and share this information at times. Yeah. Just to your point, we got to learn how to overcome some of these things. I mean, do you think companies who do business in jurisdictions like China or Eastern Europe or even Russia to have these mixed loyalties when it comes to cooperating with the U.S. government because of some of these issues? I mean, I, I think I, I, I'm wondering if maybe I had I'd use the term mixed loyalties. And, and what I mean by that is not that these companies, their, their people are not loyal to the U.S. government. I just want to be clear. Um, what I mean is that they also have a business interest in China and so sort of placating that government or making them, uh, you know, making it a little bit easier to do business there is is something that is always going to be a problem. I, I actually, I kind of want to go back because you, you said something really interesting, which was the, the issue of competition between these companies, which I, is obviously very heated. Uh, I think it's really important, and, and one of the things I try to do at CNBC is just emphasize the fact that in, in the cybersecurity community, cybersecurity professionals are, are really great. Like there's, there's, I don't see a lot of 
competition between them. But these companies, they're like they are never going to get along with each other. The relationship is never going to be cozy between the the top banks, between uh, especially the top tech companies. And and one thing that came to mind was I, I don't know if you've been following recently um, some of the issues surrounding companies like Facebook. Uh, Qualcomm, others uh, allegedly hiring PR firms to push negative stories about their competitors. Like this is a really hotly contested marketplace for these guys. They are not going to all get together and sit in a room and say, hey, let's all talk about all of the breaches that we've had recently, <laughs> you know? Yeah, especially some of the big tech companies, they're not being so nice to each other, like you, to your point, right? Exactly. They, if yeah. they can't be nice to each other, if they can't cooperate with each other, I think it's difficult to imagine how they would be expected to cooperate uh, all together with federal government, uh, and, you know, especially with, with all of the different projects they have going on overseas as well. Yeah, I definitely see some of them throwing each other under the bus in the media yeah, lately. A little bit. But, but I mean, <laughs> but is this is it good or is it bad? Or I mean, how does this really play out in the end in your mind? I mean, how do we and how do we fix it? Um, great. I I have like a one sentence. No, I'm kidding. I don't have a one sentence answer for that. Uh, if I did, I don't think I'd be working as a journalist anymore. Um, but <laughs> I, I think that it's a really complicated picture. You know, I I think that Microsoft has the right idea. They've tried to push the idea of a uh, of an international cybersecurity Geneva convention uh, I think that getting uh, countries on board with some norms around how we treat corporations and how norms around cyber warfare that involve their impact on the the lives of citizens norms around IP theft and and, and other issues like that I think that's really important I don't know. I think, I think that would help fix the problem. I think it would make it easier for companies to cooperate. Um, I think it would make it easier to uh, root out criminal organizations. I, I, I think it's a long way away uh, from, from that. I think getting the countries on board who are often the biggest instigators is going to be very difficult. I think changing the culture, like we can move away from Russia and China for a bit and talk about some of the countries in Eastern Europe. I think getting away from the culture where it's okay to do cybercrime. We're not going to tax you. We're not going to regulate you. Um, changing that culture where you have huge criminal organizations operating into one where they're okay with those people being arrested, that's, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, it's a really complex environment, and I think the United States can be very hesitant to enter any kind of, type of global agreements until I'm pretty sure that everyone's going to be playing by the same set of rules, and I don't think that's going to happen for a very long time. Um, let's switch gears here for a second. Let's talk about the supply chain. You know, from a macro level, we can break the, the supply chain threats down into just two major categories, whether you want to talk about hardware or they're talking about software. And historically, we all know that software-based attacks are really much easier to conduct than hardware-based attacks. It takes an enormous amount of effort uh, to conduct a, a hardware attack, and in a lot of cases, enormous amount of luck at the same time. But recently, we've seen some pretty big stories come out in the news relative to some of these hardware attacks. What, what do you make of these reports? I, I think... So from my sources and, and people in, in government who I've discussed with this about, uh, we're talking about the uh, China implanting spy chips possibly in um, motherboards bound for U.S. tech companies. Um, been a, a lot of uh, kind of blowback about that from the tech companies themselves. Um, but, but most of my sources would say, this, yes, this is something that we are concerned about. Um, the scenario that has always been... Uh, 
one that has come up to me is, is more along the lines of simply counterfeit products um, as opposed to implanting something in actual products that are shipping with your real, uh, your real server, your real, you know, whatever it is. I don't want to, I'm trying to avoid naming brands because I don't want anybody to say that I yep. said, you know, this brand uh, has this problem. Um, yep. But you, you can imagine like counterfeit Cisco parts, counterfeit um, motherboards, counterfeit uh, boxes that get shipped to the United States. Um, are, are something that is, you know, that's a hardware problem. That's a supply chain problem. Um, a company hey, says, hey, we can get this, we can get a whole big uh, truckload of, uh, you know, um, uh, router boxes uh, made by a major brand for 25% of the normal price. Let's, let's get it. But, you know, that, that hardware that you're getting might not be the real thing. And I think that that is a genuine concern. And it's one that, that I, I certainly am concerned about. You think that's the most pressing supply chain security issue today? I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's one that hasn't been discussed a lot. Um, I, I think that uh, it's, it's going to be really difficult for us to pinpoint, um, you know, where, where some of these issues can be changed because the supply chain is so entrenched. Um, I, I'm actually curious what you think it is, George. I, I know that I'm not used to getting asked the questions. So, um, I, I would like to turn it around because I, I am, I'm curious to what you and your experience do you think? Yeah, I mean, in my experience, you know, I think the software attacks are much more prevalent and yeah. I think they're a lot easier to conduct. And I think uh, in terms of, you know, the number of attacks, especially, you know, we're much more concerned about the software-based attacks than, than, you know, hardware in this situation. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously, counterfeit anything. You know, we, you know, being a former Secret Service agent, we're dealing with so many counterfeit yes. uh, investigations. You know, whether it, whether it's uh, counterfeit products, hardware, IDs, passports, whatever. But you know, we're pretty familiar with counterfeit. But I think uh, definitely software attacks are are a major major concern. They're much more difficult to detect. They're easy to conduct, and I think people in our adversaries have a lot more uh, resources in this respect. Um, you know, you just mentioned, you know, you're, you're used to asking the questions. So you worked in cybersecurity for a long time. I mean, we worked together in cybersecurity uh, over at JP Morgan Chase, but you've eventually made this transition to journalism. You know, why, why have, why did you do that? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's been an interesting road. I think, you know, one of the things that, that made me so interested in journalism was, uh, being in, in the role that I was in, in working with, with you there during, um, you know, a period of time when there was a lot of, let's say, nefarious activity, and and watching the the news reports that, that came out about that that activity, and and saying to myself, whoa, that that was wrong, or that was off base, or why are they telling people to be afraid of that? Like, I've got something for them to really be afraid of. You know, that that sort of reaction. Um, and I, I was lucky enough to uh, have an opportunity to go to the Wall Street Journal. Um, and and really uh, meet some terrific people who helped me learn about uh, how to how to be a better journalist and I've continued that journey at, at CNBC um, again with some really terrific folks who uh, have just um, you know given me some amazing opportunities and and I love it uh, it's it's uh, a really interesting place to be um, you know one of the things I will uh, this is the last time I'll do this George but I'm going to turn the questioning around on you one more time because it's it's my favorite question but I like to ask from your perspective of being a cybersecurity expert who who obviously follows media stories what what are we getting wrong what what could we be doing better 
The single, the single, the, the, the single most thing that drives me absolutely crazy, which, you know, I, which I, 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 I refuse and I will never do. So I'm not an investigative journalist. So I'm just, you know, I'm just a, um, you know, this is, this is an information show. We come, we do analysis, we do, we, we share information. We don't really do investigative journalism on this show uh, and go out and do things uh, probably like, uh, like you do on the, on, on your on your shows on TV or whether when you're in the past when you're working with the Wall Street Journal, but what I see some reporters do is they give away information about hacks, breaches, violations of the law that people may not know about. In some cases, some companies may not know about, but law enforcement is actively investigating. And I, I understand the need to share information, and I get the journalistic value of getting the information out there. There's, there's, one, there, there's one or two reporters out there specifically that come to mind that really have just, in my mind, screwed up dozens of law enforcement investigations by their actions, and, and in the end, probably caused a lot more harm than good because they didn't think about what the downstream consequences were of them reporting now there's nothing there's nothing illegal about what they did i mean it's more of a in, in my mind it's it, i think you can describe it as a as an ethical issue maybe a, you know a moral issue in terms of okay what is what am i really gaining here yes i probably look good i have information and resources that other people will have people call me and share information with me that they don't share with others and i can report that to the general public and who, who and in most cases are going to find very interesting. And of course, there's going to be a lot of, you know, consequences and actions because of what I do. And it's very important. All that's very, very true. But also there are law enforcement investigations out there that you know, obviously are not made public. People in law enforcement officers and on the federal level, especially, they're giving subpoenas, they're issuing warrants, they're conducting interviews, they're conducting surveillance, they're doing wiretaps. They're doing all this without the, the bad guys knowing. And then when you come out and say this and now, the, you know, the bad guys have been had. What they're doing is out in the open. They're going to change their behaviors. They're going to change what they do. And it's really going to make law, it's going to make the situation for law enforcement in terms of apprehending someone much, much more difficult. I mean, does that make sense to you or? It, it does. I, I, I hear you. Um, at the same time, I, I you know, without uh, drumming up too much, uh, I hope one of the reporters you're, you're talking about isn't me, so that we don't have to go. No, uh, no, it's not you. Go at it <laughs> on this call right now, but um, no, I, I mean, no. There's one. Know, there's one specific yeah. reporter out there who the does call. this on a regular basis. It drives me nuts. That's not, that's not name names, right? <laughs> that's not yeah. name names today. Um, but you know, I, I think um, it's uh, you know, you have some legitimate points. I think that any reporter who's who's doing anything that's related to law enforcement toes this line and tries to toe it very delicately. Um, you know, what what is what is it worth the public knowing versus what is it um, what should be you know safe for an investigation? I mean, I would say that if you're talking about something like the Equifax breach, and I'm not saying that this was one that was leaked before the investigation was complete. I don't, and I don't think it was. But um, I, I think that in in that case, if I had had been a reporter, um, you know, and I had discovered that that had happened, and that it, it was not getting out to the public, and that people's credit reports had been stolen, and I would say, you know, that's the sort of story where I don't know if the, the good might have outweighed the bad of, of breaking that story in June or July uh, when it was when it was 
starting to happen. Um, so I think it's a really delicate balance and it's something that we're always concerned about. Um, but I do, I do think that the vast majority of reporters who cover this space certainly weigh in their minds what is the, the, the good of getting this story out there, what, 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 how would the public benefit from it, versus when do we hear about an investigation going on and we let that slide. So you have a book coming out in June mm-hmm. next year called The Kingdom of Lies, and I've seen you know, the, the, the cover of it, and I think it's, looks, it looks incredible, obviously. And I've, I've known you for a long time, and so I'm pretty jacked up about this book. Tell us about the book. What is it, what's it about? So I, I have uh, in my career, I've been able to meet a lot of really interesting people, as you know, George, and uh, a lot of people sort of on both sides of the aisle, so on the criminal side of things, on uh, certainly on the public good side of things. And I, I think one of the things that we have been missing in the cybersecurity space has been these really personal stories of what it's like. You know, you got pretty passionate there about what, what it's like when you see a journalist break a story that you're trying to, you know, continue monitoring those criminals and now it's out there and now you can't do it anymore and that really sucks and I like I'm really angry about that and like those sorts of stories don't really make it out there everything is that we see reported about cybersecurity is very cold it's really clinical so I wanted to get into those stories about you know the emotion behind this space and the the way people sort of go back and forth between um, the different roles they play Uh, and I'll just keep it at that for now because the book's not coming out until June of next year and there will be a lot more to say I think before then. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to it. I'm certainly going to get it. We have to have you back on the show as soon as the book comes out. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. So, so what, what is it like seeing the nuts and bolts of how these breaches are covered on, by the media? I mean, when you're on the other side of the fence now, I mean, you're talking like, I just gave you a perspective from being a former Secret Service agent, right? Yeah. So if you're not a former federal law enforcement officer and you haven't experienced this frustration of having coming out this, you know, when you ask one of the things about a reporter or about uh, the people in the media, what do I think they're, they're getting wrong or getting right? That probably wouldn't never have come to mind because you wouldn't have the experience of being a former federal agent and being frustrated by these, yeah. by these news reports that are coming out. But from you, now that you're on the other side of the fence, I mean, what does it look like to you? I, I think it's, uh, you know, on the one hand, um, I do a lot of cringing. I do a lot of cringing um, as some of these the stories come out or the stories that I think um, don't matter. Uh, I, I, you know, I do a lot of interviews um, and I'm, George, I'm not somebody with, I have cybersecurity experience. I am not as anywhere nearly as experienced as you or some of the other people in the space. Um, but but that experience certainly informs a lot. Um, and so when I do some of these interviews, uh, I have the, the, the people I'm interviewing at corporations or in PR or in companies, um, it, it, it's, you know, they say things to me that back when I had worked in uh, the bank myself would have said to a reporter too. You know, um, you know, we're the safety and security of our uh, our customers is our top concern, and we think that uh, we're going to put some protections in place, and people are going to be really happy about it. And it's just, it it gets a little frustrating. I, I want to hear the real nuts and bolts of the story. I think I have the 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 background to tell the story correctly. And from from my point of view, I get a lot of pitches and a lot of things that I can just see are problematic, and so. Right. Um, it's really frustrating. It's tough sometimes to get to the people who are going to 
uh, dial that uh, dial right into the, the meat of the stories that we're, we're looking at. So if you're out there and you're one of those people, please call me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Kate, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more with CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Vazzini. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm with our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. So, so this is a really hot field for cybersecurity vendors, and you're a reporter for CNBC, and so it would be logical for me to ask you, what are the big business stories for 2019 in cybersecurity? Everybody wants to know. I think, uh, well, uh, well, the first business story I think that we're going to see, George, is I think we're a little overdue for a big cyber attack, and I think that's something that's going to happen it's going to be different and um, you know that is going to drive some of what the companies are doing as it always does um, I think that there are going to be a couple of IPOs that are interesting in the next year 
Um, CrowdStrike is one of them that uh, seems to be going that route. Um, I think Palantir, although not uh, strictly a cybersecurity company, um, big in the space, kind of came from that space. I, I, I think it's possible they could IPO next year. Um, I don't know if you saw this today. It was an interesting little acquisition as far as I was concerned, but BlackBerry acquired Silence, um, kind of firmly putting BlackBerry, uh, a formerly ubiquitous, as you know very well, in the wow. banking world, yeah. uh, in the cybersecurity field. They, they want to be a cybersecurity company, and um, that's an interesting transition for a company that just uh, had, had some issues with um, their hardware uh, lasting and competing with, with Apple and Android. Um, so I think uh, there, there's a couple of stories there. I think more consolidation uh, is, is going to happen. Um, but I'm really interested in these companies that are that are taking cybersecurity on as a as a business. Airbus, I believe, is, is starting a cybersecurity um, part of their business. Um, I think we ju we just reported on Moody's, which is standing up. Uh, a little bit more of a cyber risk assessment for the companies that they give credit ratings to. So everybody's getting in on it, and who will who will win? That's going to be the big business story. So there's, you know, you just named a few vendors out there, but there's so many cybersecurity uh, vendors out there. The market is just flooded. I mean, the RSA conference is just, I mean, it's overloaded. It's massive. And in some respects, it's even, you know, it's overwhelming. I mean, so are, do you think there's too many cybersecurity vendors out there? <laughs> um, I think the cybersecurity vendors think there's too many cybersecurity vendors out there. <laughs> I think you're right. Um, <laughs> there's too many for me to cover. I know that for sure. Uh, there's always a new one that comes into my inbox and I say, never heard of these guys and yet they've got big clients. Gosh, I need to get up on it. Um, you know, I, I think um, one of the stories that I think is very interesting in the cybersecurity vendor space is because it's so crowded, how incredibly competitive it is. And how that competition is driving some of these companies to do really interesting things against one another. I'm sure you have some insidery stories. I get a lot of them too about the the wild and wacky things that vendors do um, to to counterattack against their um, their their biggest competitors. Um, I think there's going to be some stories there, and I think. Uh, you're dealing with companies filled to the brim with hackers, uh, you're going to have some really interesting sort of uh, competitive back and forth that you wouldn't see in other industries. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we've been talking to a lot of companies on, on some business relationships with Task Force 7, not only the, the radio show, but with the network and how we're going to build that and what those relationships look like. And then and there's a variety of different things that we could be collaborating with them on and doing things together. I've had some companies actually ask me, you know, they want to offer more advantageous, uh, I guess, um, you know, I guess rules or, you know, a more advantageous relationship if I was to exclude their competitors from the network. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, I'm, I, I keep telling them, no, no, we're not going to do that. That's not what we do. We're not going to. name some names? <laughs> no, I can't name any names, but I mean, Gosh, darn it. Come on. <laughs> good try. But I mean, you know, it's just, you know, it's just, it's just terrible. I mean, it's just terrible. Some of the things that, and you know, it, it's, it gets, it gets nasty. It gets pretty nasty out there. I mean, a lot of these cybersecurity vendors don't like each other. Oh, that's, that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an understatement. They get downright nasty with each other. So, well, and a lot of them have broken off from one another too. So you have people who have worked together um, and they really, they really have, have come to dislike one another and you see ad campaigns run against uh, one of the competitors, you know, and 
in the hometown of the CEO of, of, the, of the competitor. And it's just, it's, it's really interesting. I think, um, you know, what, what has bothered, I know a lot of people like you, George, uh, because I do get calls from, from the executive side of the equation has been when these companies, um, try to promote, uh, some kind of weakness in their competitors' architecture, uh, you know, in these blog posts, they'll say, um, we found a weakness in X competitors uh, operating, uh, you know, in, in, in their software, uh, and we're going to tell you all about it. And it just seems uh, a little bit underhanded because, as you know, the, the CISOs are through Task Force 7 or through their, through their networks are sharing information about which products are really working on a regular basis. Um, they're going to know if the blog post that you just put out um, was BS or not. And so I right. think that that is, you know, an, an issue that uh, is really concerning for a lot of executives and probably needs to stop. No doubt. Are we going to see more consolidation in this space, you think? Oh, yes. I think there's going to be a lot of consolidation. I think, um, I think the big tech companies are going to be a part of that. I, I think Facebook's been rumored to be shopping around for a, a big uh, cybersecurity yeah. company. I think yeah. Google's been looking. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot more, both from the big tech side and, and from the pure play cybersecurity companies. So what about the big technology companies? What do you think they're looking for in terms of acquisitions? I mean, you mentioned Facebook and some other ones. I mean, what kind of, what do you think interests them in terms of, you know, what they're, what they really want, what can add value to their already their business portfolio? I mean, I think uh, some of the big tech companies like, like Google, um, which through um, one of their uh, moonshot uh, projects had, had spun up what's called Chronicle um, and, and aims to um, use some of the, the background that they have with VirusTotal to uh, you know, be also a cybersecurity player themselves. I'm sure they'll be looking for something to augment that. Um, I think that the, the big tech companies, uh, when they go looking for a cybersecurity acquisition, are looking for the problem of, of the minute. So I think that if, if Facebook's biggest problem is going to be GDPR, privacy, um, if it's uh, Cambridge Analytica, then th it makes sense for them um, to, to, to not look for an endpoint protection company. They're probably going to look for a company that does, um, whether it's regulatory risk or artificial intelligence uh, for, for these privacy issues, something along those lines. So I think it, what the big, companies, the big tech companies are looking for, it's going to be whatever solves the problem of the moment. And then we get another big cyber attack, that's going to change that equation right away. Yeah, no doubt. So I, I want to change. I want to change uh, direction here just for a second, and I want to. I want to talk about something different. I want to talk about new regulation. I want to talk about GDPR, and I want to get your opinion about. You know, some people are uh, saying, "Well, this 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 new regulation could be devastating to some uh, organizations uh, financially, not only." you know, to comply with the cost of, of compliance, but the cost of non-compliance is huge as well, obviously, these huge fines, right? And and I think, you know, that depends on, and, and, and people say it's unfair because it depends on what companies these regulators select to go after and really enforce GDPR. Uh, yeah. But uh, what do you think? Do you think that, that the experts have predicted it right? Is it just going to be as much of a financial downfall for companies as they say? Well, I think that experts who are predicting that are also the 
the the lawyers and consultants who are profiting off of it for one thing, which is is fine. You know, that's what they do for a living. Um, they certainly would see it as a doomsday scenario. Um, I think it will be a not a doomsday scenario, but I think it'll the GDPR will result in a major fine for one of the really big tech companies. I think that's kind of what GDPR was designed for. Um, I think that the the smaller companies, while there's an enormous risk there, I think that people should also never um, not overestimate how how much uh, regulatory juice has been put into the, the regulators who are going to be going after them. Um, did the regulators have the people? Uh, have they been staffed as well as the companies that they're regulating to go out and investigate and, and place those fines? And that, that kind of remains to be seen. I think a lot of folks don't see the regulator side of it. They just assume there's an army of people out there. Um, that's not always the case. These, these regulators, uh, it's, it's hard to get people to do these jobs. It's hard to staff. And without staff, it's going to be hard to enforce. So Mark Zuckerberg's out there saying that Facebook is beating, uh, being treated unfairly uh, in the news. And, uh, and that just came out a few days ago. So as far as Facebook's privacy practices, what would it take for them to, to change how they do business and collect information? What's it going to change? I mean, what's going to take, do you think? A, I mean, there's been a lot of talk up until now. I haven't seen any action yet. Um, I mean, I don't want to get too deep. I think, I mean, I think we're at a crossroads here where people have, have gathered together, individual people have gathered together all, a lot of information about what uh, is being done with their personal privacy, whether it's on Facebook or whether it's on any other platform. Um, and, and are going to make decisions based on the information that they've gathered from a lot of really good news sources and a lot of uh, really good uh, regulatory sources and official sources that, that they've uh, been able to see uh, from this entire um, the fallout from what, what happened with Facebook and, uh, and, and many of the other companies too. So I think that, um, you know, I don't know that the companies themselves are going to change. I think that people's preferences are going to change. They're going to go in different directions. Um, people might prefer, uh, there will be plenty of people who still prefer a free product, um, who don't mind um, any, any sort of issues they might uh, have with their privacy. Uh, some people might go other ways. I think new products that cater to people who want a high degree of privacy are going to uh, flourish. Um, I, I don't know that, that, that these companies need to change, though, um, and I, I don't think that uh, I don't think there's going to be a, a huge wholesale change in how um, the existing companies view privacy. Well, Kate, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I really appreciate you spending the time with us. It was very interesting. I hope you come back often. Thank you, and and I hope uh, you know the, the folks on this call uh, never hesitate to reach out. Watch CNBC, read CNBC.com, and um, that's my that's my one pitch today. I, I'm not great at making pitches, George. <laughs> <laughs> that was fine. That's fine. <laughs> okay. All right, folks. We run out of time once again. Before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. 
To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.